going on, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's episode of the podcast is a greatest hits compilation of sorts to round out 2019. I've gone through and compiled clips from nine of the most impactful exchanges that I've had over the past year with some of the top athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running. I feel really fortunate that I get to have these deep conversations. Many of them have a profound impact on me and teach me something about running, coaching, or living a better life that I then get to turn around and share with all of you on this podcast. It was a near impossible task to whittle these down to nine, but I did my best. In this episode, you'll hear excerpts from my conversations with Colleen Quigley, Coach Frank Gagliano, Coach Terrence Mahan, Hillary Allen, Brad Stolberg, Stephanie Bruce, Steve Jones, Sally McRae, and Ken Rideout. Before we go any further, it's worth mentioning that this episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. Tracksmith's products are designed to solve the problems that are unique to the experience of amateur training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of tights for chilly New England long runs or making split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets for a marathon, Tracksmith designers sweat the details. That also means they only work with the finest materials from soft and wicking merino wool in their base layers to water-repellent four-way stretch dry skin in their bislet pants. Whether you're training through the depths of winter or you need a special race day outfit to help power your next PR, Tracksmith has you covered. I personally own a ton of Tracksmith gear. I train and race in it all the time, including last month at the New York City Marathon. Tracksmith has just launched their No Days Off calendars for 2020. Every order during the month of January will ship with a free calendar to help you commit to consistency in the new year. The idea behind the calendar is to help establish positive habits in service of larger goals. What one thing can you do each day to improve as a runner? Some days that will mean executing a hard workout, and some days that might mean taking a rest day or practicing yoga or rolling out on the mat. Get your No Days Off calendar now at Tracksmith.com and follow them on Instagram at TracksmithRunning. Okay, this is a hefty episode, so let's dive right into it with Olympian Colleen Quigley, who I had the pleasure of sitting down with for episode 45. I used to actually not want to compete at all when I was younger because I was afraid, like terrified of losing. And so I thought if I don't compete, I can't lose. Um, so I had to get over that and realize you got to put yourself on the start line. Well, I had read that but, about you, that you have this fear of rejection. Yeah. Where did that come from? I have, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think probably everyone has like some kind of just natural, like you want to, you don't want to do well. You want to fit in. You want to be accepted. You want to get the big pat on the back thing. Um, I was not that I'm like the same as her. I wish I was, but I was just reading the Michelle Obama um, becoming book. And she talks about like just her whole life, just wanting to, she's just like that type A, follow the beaten path, do the steps, check the boxes, get the gold star, you know, mm. do everything, go to the right schools, do well there, go to law school. Wait, did I want to go to law school? Not really. Do I want to become a lawyer? Not really. But I was just doing what I was like supposed to do um, or like whatever step was supposed to come next. And I, re- I related to that so much. I was like, me too. I just, I want to do like, I want to make people happy and like do the right thing and be successful and like, that I think a lot of people end up getting sucked into that and then have to be like, wait, why am I doing this? Where am I? Do I want to be here? Why did I make these choices? Um, and you have to kind of like rethink it and figure out what actually makes you happy and what you actually want to do. Um, luckily, you know, just being competitive and wanting to get better and better and better at running has turned out pretty good for me because I do love I, you know, when I sit back, I do love what I'm doing. Um, but it is like something I have to be careful of. Like, why am I so obsessed with, you know, being so good at that or not failing? Like it, maybe it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something I'll probably be like working with the rest of my life. But aside from the competitive aspect of it, what do you love about running? Oh man, that's a good question. I, whenever I think about like what I love about running, I remember this one time when I, um, first joined the team at Florida state. Um, I was surrounded by all these, you know, women who already had done the things that I want to do. Like they become all Americans and national 
um, champions already. And um, coming from high school, that's like, they're like goddesses, you know, and you're like, oh my God, they're so amazing. And like, could I ever even be anything like them? And I don't know, I hope, but maybe if I'm close enough, they'll rub off on me. Um, and that was inspiring. And just, I remember just going on this run, it was, you know, Florida, so sunny and warm. And we're just like out running through this path and we're just talking and everything, you know, I barely knew them, but I just joined the team and it felt like I was like, you know, one of the pack already. And we're just like running, you know, normal run and just felt so good. You know, it felt like this is where I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I felt that again, when I joined the BTC being like these women, they're, you know, Olympians and medal, uh, world medalists and, and Olympic medalists. Like that's what I want to be. God, I hope if I'm close enough to them, they'll rub off on me. And and I didn't know them that well, but it, you know, it felt like we're all just runners and we're you know, out here working or on a run together. And it feels so good to just be part of that and be part of a community of people who are so great and just so runners are the best people. And it enriches um, other parts of your life yeah. as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think, you know, when you talk about a million and one things when you're out for just like an hour run even. And so I've always worked out any issues that I have going on the rest of my life. You like work it out, um, whether it's by yourself or with, with the girls on a run, you get done with it and you're like, I know what I'm going to do mm -hmm. about whatever that I was worried about. Um, so yeah, there's just so many things, but I think that's, it's like that day to day, just going for a run mm -hmm. that I love the most. Next up is the legendary Frank Gagliano, the 82 year old coach of the Hoka, New Jersey, New York track club who welcomed me into his home for episode 64. Here's a bit from that conversation. Are you surprised at all to still be working full time as a coach at 82 years old? No, I'm not really working full-time. I mean, I go to practice twice a week. That's when we meet. Um, I don't travel so uh, that much. But, no, I, I, I'm not surprised because there's two things. My heart and my mind is in it big time. And as long as those two continue to be in it and my health, thank the good Lord, at the age of 82 is very good and uh you know i i love it and i uh i'm not ready to pack it in at all actually i have a lot of fire in my belly as much fire as you've always had no i get tired so <laughs> i mean I, I, I there's a lot in there but it's not as much and uh i gotta take my naps too what's kept that fire burning in the last few years to go to practice and see these men and women busting their butts and sacrificing all the college graduates uh, and and busting their butts to fulfill the dream so that keeps my fire because uh they could all be making a lot of money in the world, in the business world or any other thing, but they really want to, they want to run and they want to, they want to do the best they can in the sport of track and field. How do you continue to stay sharp at age 82 after 58 years of coaching? Staying healthy, first thing. You know, I try to walk a mile a day, I try to you know, watch what I eat, you know, take good care of my wife, my children, my grandchildren. But my second family are my athletes. And uh, like I told you, Mario, a little while ago on this interview, as long as your heart and your mind is in it, don't shortchange your athletes. You know, Mario, I never made more than $100,000 in this sport as a coach. Never. Never. I don't give a damn. All I know is we're happy. And I, I see all these young men and women 
that have come true with me and my assistants or fellow coaches. They're not assistants, they're fellow coaches. Uh, it makes me proud. And uh, I'm telling you some personal things, but uh, I don't care. I mean, I'm happy for the people in the sport who are making a lot of money. I'm happy that they're taking care of track coaches. But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, I'm happy for them and their families, but uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm more concerned getting a couple of key athletes healthy, and more concerned of what we can do down the road. Will I stay in the sport after 2020? I hope so, as long as I'm healthy. You know, and. Uh, I mean, to see a Johnny Gagoric run 3.49. I wasn't there. I saw a replay. Tommy and John went. And, you know, I don't care if it was an indoor place, a great track. The air is tremendous. People up there really love the sport. He ran 3.49. All right. 3.49. And, not, you know, not many American milers have run that fast. No. And, you know, leading up to it, we were doing things that we changed in that race. And, but, I mean, my daughter had it on in Virginia. My wife and I had it on my phone on a speaker. And my daughter had the race and I was listening to the race because I don't get all these little I don't cost a lot of money to watch the sport if you're not well at I mean, the track. Uh, that's I'm, another uh, conversation yeah, for another anyway, day but uh, I don't get involved with that but anyway my daughter had it on and and the announcer said so and so just broke the world record and Johnny good guard I went crazy I thought the guy was crazy 349 and then the other kids behind him but it was a great race. The American, I mean, the, you know, the Albertos groups and, and, and Brooks, Beast, and they ran great too. Great. You get just as excited now for your athletes as you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yes, but when you're not there with them, it's a little tough, when you, especially when you're waiting for a phone call or Tommy or John call me right after the race. You know, you're sitting there and you know it's nine ten, and, you know. Uh, Getting antsy. Yeah. But that's the way it goes. Terrence Mahan is a coach who I've long looked up to and learned a lot from over the years. He's currently coaching the Mission Athletics Club based in San Diego, and he was my guest for episode 60. What do you do now to keep sharp and stay excited as a coach? I listen to way too many podcasts. Uh, number one, I'm always kind of reading and always listening and just trying to pay attention. And, you know, I never feel like I've figured it out. And so I think that keeps that hunger alive of like, you know, what, you know, how can I do this a little bit better? What if I tweak this thing? What does that do? So I'm always paying attention that way. I mean, each athlete's a puzzle, right? And it's like, so my main thing is, and, you know, we easily get into habits of trying to compare an athlete you're coaching now to one you coached before, mm -hmm. right? And you're like, oh, well, you're just like so-and-so. So you just give them the same thing. And I think that's a mistake. I think you can give them some of the same things or maybe 80% of them is exactly the same as that person. But then this other 20% is totally different. So how, you know, am I leaving that untouched if I don't pay attention to that? So it's like, you know, you really have to start to learn who these people are, what makes them tick, what are the things that motivate them demotivate them. Uh, and if I find like I'm, I'm stuck where I'm, I'm in a block, then I'm going to go dig my head in the, into Google or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, what can I find out? What do, what do I not know? I've got these five guys who I'm emailing and say, Hey, here's my athlete problem. What do you think? And then that may give me other areas to then start researching. So I've got a group that like, it's this constant onslaught of like research articles that just go rolling through. Mm -hmm. Going back to when you were under Coach V Hill, and he said, "Hey, I'm going to step away. 
next year. I want you to take over the group. I imagine that was an exciting moment for you, but were you, do you have a moment of panic at all? Being like, <laughs> I'm going to take on these world-class athletes who are trying to make Olympic teams and win medals and be the best in the world. And I'm sort of diving into the deep end here. Yeah, it was definitely a, you know, put up or shut up moment for sure. Uh, and fortunately, I mean, V Hill kind of did that, you know, he's like, yeah, do you want to take it over? Cause this is where it is. And basically it was like the first call I made was like to Dina, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, this is what coach V Hill's thinking. I know what you and Andrew have been doing and whatnot. It's like, he would like me to kind of take over or like, or number one, like, are you okay with this? You know, is this what you, so then Dina and Andrew and I sat down and kind of talked through it. And, and for me, it was like, I needed that athlete buy-in and comfortability with it. And we've had, we had a really strong relationship prior to that. And I would help her with little things here and there, just because when she started into the marathon, like I had already been a marathoner. So I was giving her tips along the way. Uh, so it did start with, you know, okay, are we all cool, you know, and with Meb and what was he going to do? And he's still working with Larson, but I'm going to help with a couple other things that he hasn't been doing. Uh, and then it was like, yeah, then you get, you know, then, the, you know, January 1 of, of 2005 and you have your, you know, oh shit moment. Like, all right, we got to get after this because Dina now wants to run this 8K in Chicago and, you know, chase a world record or something. And I'm like, well, okay, all right, here we go. Uh, so yeah, there, there was a bit of panic, you know. Uh, but a lot of those foundational pieces had been already laid down. Yeah, for sure. So it was really, I mean, listen, it's like, I, I you know, I never invented the wheel and I mean, V Hill didn't invent the wheels. Like we're always building on top of other people. So then you're just asking questions and looking at things from different objectives, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, okay, well, here's all the things you've been doing with V Hill. Let's say, you know, are there things we want to tweak a little bit and, and then experiment and see what that does. So it was, it was mostly that. Right. And then we start to piece those pieces together with different athletes. You've had a number of athletes make Olympic teams, win global medals under your guidance. What do you learn from them? Man, you learn from athletes every day, you know, uh, I mean, just phenomenal things, you know, like obviously overcoming adversity is, is huge, you know, probably the funniest, it's like you have so many, like when we watch athletics as a whole, right? Like you watch uh, Elliot Kipchoge run Berlin or, or, you know, the Dinas and the Ryans or Mebs. It's like, it's like as a coach, you know, the behind the scenes stuff and you know, like what was happening two weeks before, three weeks before, four weeks before. Uh, and that's the funniest part of it where you're like, man, I just, there's no way I thought this was going to happen. You know, like when Ryan ran the Olympic trials, for the first time in the marathon in Central Park and everyone's, oh, he ran 61 last half and da da, You know, and the funny part is that it's like nine weeks before he couldn't run, you know? And I mean, we, the last eight weeks of that program were so different than anything we've ever done before to try to get him ready because it was just total panic and total mayhem and he's not going to do it and this is four years wasted and, you know, and then you're, you're putting band-aids on and doing all these kinds of things. And then you, you know, you get to that two or three weeks out and like, man, I think we're going to do it, you know? And then watching from an athlete perspective where all of a sudden he gets it or she gets it. And then you see that just click. And then it's like game time, you know, I think that's the biggest thing I get from an athlete is like learning, you know, all these things you see as a coach, right? Like, this athlete should be able to do this or they should be able to hit these times or, or do this performance, but it's all nothing because it's just you or me talking here and we know the science of it and the method, but the athlete's the one who has to believe into it and believe in themselves. Right. And it's, it doesn't matter how much you tell them how great they are or whatever until they get it. And I think watching that process happen and how it happens differently with each athlete is, is probably the most exciting part of coaching. <laughs> All right, next up is ultra runner and scientist Hillary Allen. She's a total badass on the trails whose energy and enthusiasm for running and life is absolutely infectious. This excerpt is from episode 49. Do you think there is anything about your physiology that not only helped you survive, but all things considered, helped you survive relative, I mean, <laughs> relative, I mean, you weren't intact, but like you're back intact yeah. now. I mean, that should have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And fortunately it wasn't, but do you think there's anything about your physiology or your athletic history or something that 
helped you survive that as well as you did? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think about it frequently. Um, I think, yes, there is something there. My coach actually refers to me as, what is the actually word he used? Hilly Wolverine or something like this. Like, you know, Wolverine, how he doesn't, he can heal, but he um, doesn't experience pain. So it's a Hilly Wolverine because I can heal but I, I do experience pain. <laughs> um, so there's that, like the super healing part of it. Um, so maybe like that's just part of my physiology. Um, but also like I've read a lot of books about survival and in particular, this one book is called Deep Survival. It's by, by Lawrence Gonzalez. And um, he talks about how during these like fighter pilots or there's these super stressful moments. And if you freeze, if you are become tense, um, like in a car accident too, like that's when you break your bones. But if you relax, people actually come out more unscathed. And I think that's what happened to me because it was that eerily calm voice that told myself like this matter of factly, like you're dying. I'm amazed at how lucid you were <laughs> as you were falling and having mm-hmm. heard you describe that a couple times. Now, that's why I asked that question because most people would just be freaking the fuck out. Yeah, I know. And that that's, moment. that's what I don't understand is, and I've always been very calm under pressure. I mean, you know, in graduate school in a super, in a certain, a very stressful situation when I'm giving a formal talk to all these, like these, these panel of experts. Um, and I just, I'm calm and I, I think I respond well in a high stress situation, but I've never been in this kind of a stressful situation. Um, and yeah, it was just matter of factly. And I think I was able to accept the fact that I was dying instead of just fighting it. And in that way, I think I was able to kind of protect my head and fall in a way. Like I said, I remember whenever I would hit, I was scrambling to like stop my momentum. Like it, I was trying actively to like not die, but I was also passively relaxing and knowing that like this was happening. I had to you know, not completely freak out. Um, and even when the rescue operation was happening. Well, it's like we say to our athletes in other situations, control the controllables. And there wasn't a lot that mm. you could control yeah. in that situation, but you could control your mind, number yeah. one. Yeah. And to maybe to some degree, how you were falling, maybe that was it. Maybe that was enough to yeah. help you come out of it. Maybe. And that's also something I didn't mention about like just training and the explorative part of running. Something I've learned that I've always taken with me is problem solving that that comes from my scientific background as well, is that I can have a plan going into something, but it doesn't always go according to plan. In fact, most races don't go perfectly. Well, I have this conversation with my athletes all the time, not just the ultra Mm -hmm. runners, but racing, Mm -hmm. no matter the distance, it's one giant exercise in problem solving. Mm -hmm. And as it gets longer and steeper and all, like you have more variables that you Mm -hmm. have to deal with. Um, But at its core, that's what racing is. It's a giant exercise in problem solving. Exactly. And making snap decisions and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you can't, if you can't do that, if all of a sudden something goes wrong and then you freak out and you can't, you, you don't know how to make a solution or make things better or kind of, you know, figure it out. Um, it can snowball and it can get worse. And so I think that's something that I've always had and something that I like doing and enjoy doing like, and I've all, I always do it. It's how I think. Like, if something goes wrong, I am thinking of 10 different alternatives to fix this problem. And I think that's another reason as to why I survived because I was problem solving in those moments of, okay, what can I do? What can I control? And let go of the things that you can't. Brad Stulberg is a good friend of mine, author and coach who writes, speaks, and coaches on health and the science of human performance. We talked about performance, passion, addiction, health, well-being, purpose, burnout, the importance of practicing self-awareness and self-compassion, and a number of related topics on episode 53. Listen in. Why is self-compassion so hard for people? I don't know. I think I think that a lot of it is just that self-compassion requires slowing down and looking inward and being honest with how you feel. And culturally, that is not the default option. It can feel like swimming upstream. And I think self-compassion... So the word compassion comes from suffering, right? Passio is to suffer. 
And compassion is actually to suffer together. So you show compassion for someone else, you suffer together. Self-compassion is compassion for your suffering. But that requires facing your suffering and like looking inside at the stuff that is scary and that you don't want to face. That's really hard, uncomfortable work. So in order to get to the other side, to truly feel compassionate for yourself and like to show yourself love, you have to come to terms with the ugly stuff. And that ugly stuff can be, I'm insecure. That ugly stuff can be that the only reason that I race is because I'm scared to die and this gives me something else to focus on. It can be that I feel validated and my self-worth is from this. Like all kinds of stuff comes up and that's normal. Like we're humans. That's the thing. Like that doesn't mean that you're broken. Like the more you can acknowledge that, be aware of it and be kind to it, the better chance you have of getting to the other side where suddenly you're just racing out of love. Yeah. And I think your point about slowing down is huge and and obvious to me, especially in today's society where we are accessible all the time. The pace of work, the pace of life, the pace of everything has been accelerated to the nth degree. And we feel like if we slow down, we're going to get left behind. But it's an integral step in certainly that self-compassion that you talked about, but just overall awareness of yeah. what's going on at any given time. And I know for you, meditation is a big part of your daily practice. Are you still meditating twice a day? Um, I try to meditate twice a day. Uh, I've, I've now gotten 11 month old. So the, the afternoon sessions are harder because we pick them up from daycare. And um, oftentimes like the awareness is just being fully present with him. But yeah, I meditate every morning and probably 50% of the evenings. And for you, how has that meditation practice helped you to become more aware, helped you to slow down what's going on in your life so that you can tackle the rest of your day? It has, it has helped in so many ways. Um, I think first and foremost is it's helped me realize habitual patterns of thinking and feeling. So there's a big misconception about meditation, which is when I meditate, I'm going to do it to relax. Not like very rarely does that happen, at least at first. Um, when you sit and meditate, what ends up happening is all the stuff comes up that you don't otherwise give space to come up. Um, I can't believe I'm sitting here doing this. I've got this whole list of to-dos. Um, what am I going to get out of this? You know, all kinds of self-doubt, negative self-talk, all kinds of stuff comes up. Um, and if you run away from it, then it just comes up again and again. But over time, what happens in the practice is you learn to see these cycles of thoughts and emotions that accompany them. It's just very predictable weather patterns. And you can be separate from the weather patterns. You can be like, oh, look, it's raining. But even though it's raining, I'm going to go do this other thing versus be, being the rain yourself. Um, so that removal and that ability to see habitual thinking patterns then lets you put self-compassion around those thinking patterns and, and, and make change. Um, and then the other thing that it's done without getting too woo-woo is um, it's just really helped me feel more connected to those that I care about and, and to communities that I'm involved in. Um, and that's something that, like... Um, Again, with, without I write about science without trying to sound so woo-woo. Like you just kind of have to do it and see it for yourself. And, and not everyone has that experience. Stephanie Bruce has got grit. The mom of two boys is running the best she ever has at 35 years of age. And we dug into that and a lot more in episode 52. Have a listen. What does grit mean to you? And why did you decide to focus on that word, that theme last fall? So when I was getting ready to run New York Marathon last fall, I kind of just had this like moment of looking back on my career, seeing how far I had come after having children. And then I was looking ahead to 2020 and beyond and thinking, okay, what are the things I want to achieve in the next couple of years, you know, before my career comes to an end? And I started to wonder people always ask like, where do I get my motivation from? And I, I didn't know how to answer that because I think I'm a very just intrinsically self-motivated person. And so before I started training, I was like, I feel like I need something. I need like a word or a mantra to define what it is that keeps me getting out the door with two kids, with balancing everything, running 110, 120 mile weeks. Um, 
and grit. I just loved everything that word was about. You know, it was resolve of character. It was resisting complacency. And I had read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, and she talked so much in there about how uh, when she was a young girl, her dad had really high expectations of her, and he always thought her grades had to be at this standard in order for her to be successful. And she told her dad, she's like, you know, dad, I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to have a calling. And I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I'm going to be the grittiest. And so then grit just became this like, I don't know, this reason that I took it into training for a new New York marathon. But then I also looked at the things that were going on in my life. You know, I was trying to help my mom who was going through um, stage three breast cancer. And then my brother was, he almost died in a drug overdose and he was in a rehab facility. And so I had all these personal things going on and I, I kind of just needed something to hold on to and to wake up every day with reason and motivation to get out the door. And I found that the more I shared that, the more other people were realizing, hey, they had hard things that they were doing in their lives and trying to get through. And that grit just resonated with them. And so originally we launched the t-shirts and for the first half of the sales, we donated a portion of that to Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is the cancer uh, treatment center in New York, where my mom and dad were both treated. And actually, Gabe Grunwald is um, she has all her cancer treatments there. So it was just kind of a special place in my heart. And then, yeah, I just kept selling the shirts. And it's really cool that people share their stories with me on Instagram, or they send me a message of them wearing the shirt. And you know, for some people, it's as simple as 15 miles on the treadmill at 5 a.m. Like that's grit, or someone getting through a divorce. That's grit. And so it, it was just really cool that this one word and messaging could resonate with so many different people. I love it. How can people or how would you encourage people to cultivate grit in their own lives? <sighs> Put me on the spot. Um, I, I just think that, um, yeah, sometimes grit gets the connotation of like, uh, you have to push through push through things when it's going poorly. And so I don't like that, like grit your teeth and just push through an injury or something like that. That's not the purpose, but it's that things are going to be uncomfortable in life and you're going to have uncomfortable runs, uncomfortable races, uncomfortable conversations with family and friends and, you know, standing up to your boss if you feel like you deserve a raise. All things like that, I think it's just giving you a little more courage and a little more... I guess, um, pep in your step to really stand up for what you believe in and to push through those hard days and know that you're going to see light at the end of the tunnel. It's not often that you get to spend an hour talking to your favorite runner of all time, but I was lucky to have that opportunity earlier this year with Steve Jones on episode 81. Here's a snippet from that conversation. 1976, uh, he I just got married, just got in my first uh, married quarter. My parents were visiting, and I got a knock on the door, and Bob Wallace was at the door. And he said, uh, Steve, he said, um, I think you've got some talent. I think uh, that I'd like to help you out. Do you mind if I coach you? And I said, not at all. So he coached me, and I was his first athlete that he coached, he, he, he had coached, and, and we both learned together, you know, um, and I just did everything Bob said, every workout, um, every mile he told me to run, I, I ran, the races he wanted me to run, I ran, I just absorbed it all. So my philosophy really comes from Bob's, Bob's input. He coached me from 76 to 84. Uh, coached me from a, a, a B-team runner to the Olympic 10,000-meter final. Did he so, coach you through your first marathon? No. no he, he retired just before the Olympics in 1984. And after uh, that, were you mostly self-coached? or after that, after that, I coached myself for two years um, through 86. And then my club coach, uh, uh, Mike Rowland, uh, I approached him and asked him if he would help me out. It was in too stressful trying to organize my running, my, my uh, races and all the other stuff that was going on, you know, post uh, world record uh, race in Chicago. So he gladly helped me out and he, he effectively 
because I never really retired. He's still coaching me now. <laughs> he doesn't send me a program. <laughs> but it's, 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 as you just described earlier with your own athletes, it's more than just the program. It's yeah. that relationship. It's that yeah. friendship. It's the guidance that they can provide throughout your life. Years later, but uh, I say years later, Bob started coaching me in 76. I'd say 1972 or three, 82 or three. He paid me a compliment, which was the best compliment he ever he ever gave me, and he he told somebody that I had a insatiable appetite for hard work. So you know, that's where I I uh, put down all of my success to is I just had this appetite for hard work, um, and I never, I did everything Bob asked me to do for eight years. Well, and combine that with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong with this as well, but what you described earlier about how when you first got into running at 15 years old, all you did was race. You raced six times a year, and that was the only running that you did, but you wanted to prove something. So combine that you know, insatiable appetite for hard work, which came later with what seemed like a chip on your shoulder at the time to sort of prove people wrong. I mean, to me, just in in my experience, that's a dangerous combination. Yeah. And I, I... I was in a position where I could use that uh, philosophy, I suppose, or that ambition, because I was starting at the bottom, you know, and I used to run for Swindon AC uh, back in 75, 76, until 1980. And I remember running in league races, cross-country races on, on Saturday afternoons in the pouring rain. And I'm way down in the middle of the field, but, but I had my targets even there because you're running against the same people week in or week out. And I had these targets of, I want to beat that guy there. One guy, Dave Sherman, uh, God rest his soul, uh, he was somebody I picked out that for weeks I beat him by two seconds. He beat me by three seconds. And then I beat him by more than that one week. And then, of course, it's the next person then. The next person becomes the victim or the target. For, for your next race. Um, and that, that's how my whole career, my whole running career went. It was always trying to beat the guy in front of me, always trying to catch the guy in front of me. And that helped me, not just with, not just the training. It wasn't just the training, but it was that attitude going into races. And like I said, you know, when I started winning races, I didn't want to win them by one second. I wanted to win them by 90 seconds or two minutes. It was always about beating the, beating the opposition. Annihilation, I, I used to call it. Sally McRae, a.k.a. Yellow Runner, is an athlete that I'm lucky enough to coach and call one of my own. She has a rabid social media following who are inspired by her story, work ethic, and determination. See why in episode 80. Have you always had a hard time recognizing your victories in life? I have. That's... I can say that with, with confidence. <laughs> I don't just mean races yeah. that you've won. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, just across the board. I, I can always say, you know, there, there is something I could have done better. I wanted, you know, I, I definitely could have improved. And in some ways it excites me. Some ways I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to try that again, but I'm totally going to do it differently. So, um, I, I recognize the good in that. I think, sometimes it's how you, you actually propel yourself to be your best self and be at your best is there is an element of, you know, you don't just want to settle and be like, ah, it's fine. But at the same time, um, I think where I will be off balance is when I go for a very long time and just never celebrate anything. And it's just, everything is, isn't good. And it can be as something as little as like every run this week sucked, but it didn't. You know, it was just like, I, I wasn't at the pace I wanted to be, or I didn't feel the way I wanted to, or I didn't run at the time I was supposed to, or, um, it's maybe little stuff like that, or even just in my, in my parenting or the way I run my household or, you know, it's, it is much easier for me to, to pull out all the things I need to work on as opposed to, um, well, look at what you accomplished and I'll, I'll share this with you. I've never shared this before. I don't think. Um, a couple years ago, I, I recognized that in myself and I thought <laughs> it was actually because, um, 
my I've I've already said it, but my husband's very opposite of me. And um in like the best way. I was talking to him on the phone and I was we were joking because he's like, I I want to ask you about your day, but I also don't because I know I'm going to be overwhelmed when I ask you about your day. Because um, so often in the past, he'll say, what did you do today? And he's like, are you kidding me? Because it's so much. Or or he'll see my to-do list sitting on the table and he's like, that's all for today or for the week? <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's like for today. And he's just like, you need to like choose four of those, not 24. And um and so I now have, it's just a, a weekly habit where I'll sit down and write down the things that I accomplished and no matter how small they are, but it's just to kind of remind myself and there's, you know, sometimes I'll, it'll be four o'clock on a Monday and I'll be like, Oh my gosh, I didn't get anything done today. And I'm just like stressed and upset. And, you know, I have to run one of the kids to practice and I know I have to come back and get dinner ready. And I'm just like, I didn't, I didn't get anything done. And then I'll sit down and write out everything I did. And I'll be like, Oh no, I, I did do a lot today. And I need, I need to show grace to myself or it'll just be like, why am I so tired? You know, it'll be Wednesday. And I'm like, why am I so tired? And then it's like, I'll look at my training log and I'll look at my meetings for that week. And I look back at my planner and I'm like, or you'll oh. call me and I'll remind you <laughs> how many times, right? Countless. <laughs> how many times have I texted you? Like, Hey, something came up and you're like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> what now? Well, or when I ask how you're feeling and you say, I'm really pretty tired. And I know for you to just admit that number one is a big deal, but then we start peeling back the layers and I know what you're doing from a training standpoint. Yeah. And then much like you just described with your call with Eddie, you you tell me what you're doing. And I'm like, that was all today. And you ran 18 miles with four by 12 minutes in there. You crazy woman. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, I mean, like I said earlier, that's just, that's a part of me that, you know, maybe that's just a broken part of me and that's okay. I've, um, you know, there, there was definitely a a time in my life where I, I had to tell myself it's okay to be broken. Like that's, that's okay. The, the goal in life isn't to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. There, there's no one in history (laughs) that we can point to that's lived a perfect life. So the reality is, is, and you said this so wonderfully when I was at UTMB and I was like, I know this when I was so disappointed in my performance, I was so down and you said, you know, it isn't about how you finish. It's about how you respond to this journey and how you continue on. And I'm like, I know this, I know this. And it was just like, that is such a great reminder for everything in life because life, when it comes down to it, it's the journey. That's the most fulfilling part. It's not standing by yourself on a podium. He's not a household name, but Ken Rideout is a dad of four who works full-time and just ran a 228-25 marathon personal best at the age of 48. Beyond that, however, he's lived an interesting life and is one of the most raw, driven, and passionate people that I know, and it really comes across throughout the conversation that we had for episode 91. Check it out. When people say, oh, I did this race, it was just a training race. I don't know, even understand that. Every race to me is a race to the death. Like, I'm going to race every race to win. I don't know how to do a half marathon as a training run. You know, maybe if it was like a huge race and I had no chance of winning, but maybe, but I've never done that. I've always gone, no, I'm going to empty the tank and try to win. So where does that competitive streak come from? And here's how I'm going to set this up. We just got a puppy last week. And our puppy was found at two weeks old under an abandoned camper on a trash pile, dehydrated and malnourished. And when we go to feed him now, as I was describing to you earlier, we put him in his crate so that we can get his bowl of food set up. And he starts going bananas. Like he just starts losing his mind. He's pawing on the cage. You know, we can get him to sit and like wait for a minute, but you can see him. He's like shaking with excitement because he wants to eat so bad. And that's what... I thought of when you were just describing how you approach a race and where does that come from? Is that from somewhere like deep in your childhood where you've always had this insatiable appetite to try and beat people and get the most out of yourself? 
You know, I don't know that it's as much an excitement to like get out there and race and yay, I'm having fun per se. It, I think it's more like I sign up for these things and when I get to the finish line, I'm so scared of having a bad race that the fear of failure is so much more motivating to me than the joy of vic- than the thrill of victory. I, I, if that makes sense. Like I'm just I put myself in these positions where I'm like, Oh my God, this, I, I really don't want to embarrass myself here. I hope this goes well. I've kind of put my goals out there for the whole world to see. I'm not shy about sharing what I want to do and what I think I can do. And then when it comes down to crunch time, you're like, I mean, many times I've woken up and thought, Oh, what can I do to get out of this? Can I fake an injury? And then I realize it's just me. The only person I'm faking is me. The only person I'm lying to is me if I do that. And, and, and the same thing with not finishing a race. I'm the only person that I have to answer to. And one of the things Teddy Atlas, one of the things that Teddy Atlas talks about on our podcast is um, being a game quitter. It's much more painful and much more difficult to quit than it is to stick it out and give your best. Because you have to live with that quit and that failure for a fucking long time. And the pain of suffering through, especially a race where someone's not trying to like literally kill you, you can do this. And I just, you know, you get up and I find myself going through the motion. It's almost like I'm on autopilot because in my heart, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to like be exposed like that 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 fear of failing is like incredibly powerful for me but like i said the 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 pain of not giving your all is like lasts with me forever and and as i said earlier i'm the only one that cares and i know that but i care you know i care if i fail and i care if i didn't give a hundred percent and it's i don't know it's like a mental exercise for me so what's failure for you is failure losing the race is failure not hitting the time that you're setting out to get or is failure not getting the best out of yourself when you look back at it afterward i think failure would be not getting the best out of myself if i finish and feel like i could have done better i mean if i ran 225 and thought like God damn, if I, if I ran a little hotter at the beginning, I bet I could have held on to the end and got a little faster. Obviously, that's an extreme example. I'd be psyched to do that. But my wife gives me shit about this all the time. The first time when I ran 233 uh, a couple years ago, I had a goal of running 236. I had only run 240 before. And when I finished, I was like, I came in third in Tucson. Um, a, a young army kid, military kid beat me by three minutes. And the kid in second was 11 seconds ahead of me. And when I finished, I was like talking to my wife and she's like, wow, that's incredible. And I was like, oh, can't believe I didn't get the kid for a second. I could see him. And she's like, are you insane? You ran so much faster than you thought you could even humanly run. But I don't know. That's the way it always is. I always feel like, mm, could I have done something different? And I'm not saying this. Hey, look at me. I'm like trying to kill myself to be the best. I don't. I don't think I'm the best. I, I, I think that, again, relatively speaking, I'm just a regular dude who's trying to like fill voids in his life. So how important is it for you to have this filler in your life? What void? Critically, nothing else it? happens if I don't get to exercise and do this training. It's, it will be a horrible situation for everyone. What void is it filling? Uh, maybe some sort of validation that I'm like relevant in something other than like, I mean, I think that I'm a, a pretty good dad and, uh, I'm probably a better dad than I am a husband. I could, I could be a lot better with regards to some aspects of my life, but this is, I don't know. It's filling a void that and, you know, I'm, I'm not the best at anything and I'm close. I, I, I feel like I could be the best in my age group in the country and running on the right day. I think I can do that. And um, I don't know that that's just it's hard to explain. It, it fills a physical competitive void that's people don't most people don't get in their lives, which I don't understand. I, I, I can't relate to someone who doesn't have like physical interests and like ways of getting, even if it's, you know, if you're limited in one area, maybe there's something else you can do. You can swim or you can do CrossFit. I, you know, I just, how much of it is being the one thing that you have full control over? No, that's a big point. That's a big part of it because, um, yeah, not a lot of people have a lot of control over things in their lives, right? You, you have a family. You don't have control over what your kids do. I can tell you that <laughs> if, you, if you don't have kids and you want to uh, 
get an exercise in um, learning to accept the things that you can't control. Uh, having children is a perfect example. I'm very uh, anal and neat and organized. And when you have kids, you better like get rid of that trait immediately because there's constant chaos in the house and kids doing crazy shit all the time like poking the dog you know not trying to hurt her but like this morning one of them was trying to push the dog down the stairs because she'd not been down the stairs so I come out and gave him a little whack on the bum and then he starts crying to my wife's like why'd you give him a whack I'm like because he's gonna throw the dog down the stairs and it's just like you know you you made a good point is that that could be it it's like that's the one thing that's all me you know it's like I get out of it what I put into it and um you know that it just motivates me to have something that I can feel proud of at the end of the day All right, that's it for this special best of 2019 episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this podcast journey with me. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode that you've listened to over the past two years of this show's existence, please leave a rating and a brief review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on to show your support and help new listeners discover the show. Many thanks to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Have big goals for the new year? Tracksmith has just launched their 2020 No Days Off calendars, which will ship for free with every order during the month of January. Grab yours by shopping at tracksmith.com and follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show, and he makes every episode sound as good as it does. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. 